One of the things that I think isn't common for all of us is that we like to be right. Am I right? I'm right, right? Yeah, of course. We want to be right. But even more than that, not only do we want to be right, we want people to know we're right. You get into a conversation with someone, uh, we want them not just to, we don't want just to press the point that we're right, but we want everyone to know we're right. And it's difficult for us in a situation, a setting, where we know we are right, we know we are following the right person, we know we have the right ideology, the right theology, the right philosophy, uh, we know that we're right about whatever the disagreement is, and we, it's hard for us not to make sure everyone in the room understands that we have it right. It's, it's just a part of our human nature. And in some ways, there's nothing wrong with that. In other ways, there is this underlying sense of, I mean, the word that comes to my mind is arrogance. About making sure people know we're right. There's something, what we're in essence saying a lot of the times is, something about me is better than something about you. The way I think is better than the way you think. The person I follow is better than the person you follow. The ideology or theology or philosophy I have is better than what you have. And, and there is this underlying sense of our struggle with being arrogant about being right. It doesn't mean that we're not right. There's just something about the spirit, the attitude in which we approach it. And this is not a new problem. This is not something human beings just started uh, dealing with in the last 10, 15, 200 years. This is something that goes all the way back to as, as beginning of when human beings first sinned. And we see it in the New Testament. As, as Paul begins to write this letter to the church at Corinth. The passage we read begins at verse 18, but beginning at verse 10, before that, Paul jumps right into the issue that seems to be, uh, seems to have, have inspired him to write this letter. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul, I'm a follower of Apollos, follow of Peter, I follow only Christ. Now, when I read that, as the, I mean, you know, he's, the first nine verses are, I love you, I, I give thanks to you, God for you, you know, the typical introduction that Paul gives, and then he gets right to it. And, and it strikes me that if Paul comes to that issue so quickly, I wonder if the whole rest of the letter is in one way or another addressing that problem. He writes a lot of things in this letter. He, he writes about worship. He writes about uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. He, he writes about love, the 13th chapter, the famous chapter. He writes about spiritual gifts. He writes about the, how the body and how we're connected to each other. He writes about speaking in tongues. He writes this great chapter about the, the resurrection. But all of those things, it seems to me, in one way or another, keep addressing this issue of Unity, or better, disunity among the people. And when, they, when the argument is, I follow Peter or Paul or Apollos, or, you know what, I don't mess with those guys. I just follow Jesus. There is this underlying sense of arrogance that I know more than you do. I'm better than you are. 
If you could just see things the way I see, then your life would be great. What intrigues me about this is that when after Paul introduces the problem, the very first thing he comes to, the very first solution he addresses with them is to take them to the cross. Now, he says the cross is foolishness to a lot of people. People who don't understand it look at the cross and think that's the craziest thing in the world. Now, for us, 2,000 years later, the cross has become something that we, we uh, look at as, as, a, as a positive thing. Now, you know, we think about the cross and, and we lament the pain that Jesus endured. But for us, this is a positive symbol. We sing about things like the power of the cross. But in first century Palestine, it would not have been viewed that way. It was, it was, it, it was a picture of execution. This is something that people who, who didn't know how to live in the world right faced. This is for criminals. This is for, this is for people who commit treason. This is for heretics. If we were to put it into modern context, maybe instead of having a cross here, maybe we'd have an electric chair or gas chamber or gallows. Things that, that, are, that bring about images of shame for us. And so for them, Paul says, you know, I recognize that the cross that we look to as this as this awesome event, is foolishness to a lot of people. And, and to the Jews, in the book of Deuteronomy, it talks about how anyone who hangs on a tree is, is obviously cursed of God. Anyone who's been executed like that. And if you leave that person hanging too long, it, it brings the curse onto the whole community. Paul understands the foolishness of the cross. Because for years, until he met Jesus, he persecuted Christians. And, and it's not because Paul was evil. It's just because Paul could not quite reconcile in his mind that, that people who followed someone who died like that could ever claim that, that this person was blessed by God. This is identifying that person as being cursed by God. And so people who claim to follow this person and that it leads them to God are either heretics or crazy or both. It's foolishness. And for the Gentiles, for the Greeks who, who uh, value wisdom so highly, for them it's all about what you know and how you can communicate what you know. And as long as you know the right things, then you're good. And Paul is not disparaging knowledge. He talks often about how, how helpful and important knowledge is. But when knowledge is what we worship, the cross looks foolish to us. Because that's not how things get done in this world. That's not how things operate. That's not the position of power and strength that, that moves the world. And so he says it's foolishness to people who don't understand. It's a stumbling block. Think about the various religions of the world and the symbols that, uh, that they use. Philip Yancey was, writes in one of his books about being in, at that time it was Bombay, now it's Mumbai, India. And uh, this place where he said, basically, the four, great, the four largest religions of the world tend to operate in pretty peacefully. 
He said, was out, he was out for a walk one day, and he, he said, wherever you go in that city, you see images of, the, of Hinduism. Not just the temples, but even like vendor carts. All of the painted gods and the images, it's just so prevalent everywhere. And these are the images that, that, the, that Hindus look at as, this, is, this is triggers our faith. And he said, as I walked, I came across a mosque, which is obviously very different from the Hindu temples. They have no images. They simply have a spire on top, a, a minaret that reaches into the heavens to about the one God, Allah. And as he continued his walk, he came across a Buddhist center. And, and there he walked in, and the, the aroma of incense and the, the monks in their saffron robes, trying their best, sitting in front of the Buddha, to empty their minds of every thought. And the Buddha was the representation of their faith. And eventually he came to a Christian church. He said it probably resembled the mosque more than any of the others, but the one difference, they had a spire, the one difference was at the top of the spire was a cross. He said, you know, he grew up with the cross. But for some reason in that setting, viewing all of those other images, all of a sudden he began to realize how foolish that the cross looks to everybody else. How different the cross is to people who don't understand it. Because the cross represents not power, but weakness. The cross represents vulnerability. The cross represents death, torture, pain, loss, despair. Why in the world would people make that their primary symbol? We've gotten so used to it that it just makes sense to us. But when you pull back and you stop and think about it, it looks kind of crazy. But Paul says, what looks foolish and weak to the world is really the means through which God exercises his power and his wisdom. Because the power of the cross is not in, in the kind of power that we, that we see in our world, that we think moves the world. The, the power of the cross is in Jesus' willingness to surrender and to give his life. There are some people who want to simply say, let's remove the cross from this whole discussion. Let's not worry about the cross, the Jesus of Calvary. That's too hard to understand. Let's just focus on the teachings of Jesus. That's good enough. But if you take, if you remove the cross from the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus really become nonsensical. I mean, if you don't have the cross, why in the world would you think that blessing comes from being poor in spirit or being meek? And humble. Why would we think, without the cross, why would we think that the blessing comes from, from being merciful instead of being vindictive? Why would we think, without the cross, why would we think that, that, the, that the way to life is in giving up instead of grasping? In letting go instead of hoarding? Why would we ever think that blessing could come from being persecuted? If without the cross, turning the other cheek makes no sense. Going the extra mile makes no sense. It, it makes no sense without the cross. 
you put it into the concept of, of how all the other gods of the world are viewed, and, and, and you realize that in many ways that the whole point in, in most of the other, the other religions of the world and how they view their gods is that to be the, a god means you don't have to mess with human stuff. That's the whole point of being God. You don't have to do that. That's the perk of being God. It's like being a parent. You know, the whole point of being a parent is you get to tell your kids what to do. You get to control them, right? I mean, that's what we do this for, isn't it? You got to have some kind of perk about being God. And the perk of being God is that I get to do what I want. I don't have to mess with all this human stuff. I, I distance myself from it. I'm completely away from it. That's what you keep seeing over and over again as you read about all the other gods of the world, except for ours. And the image of our God is not a God who distances himself from the world, but a God who walks right into the world. Sometimes I've I've wondered about, you know, when Jesus... When Jesus, after the resurrection and the ascension, the world, quite frankly, doesn't look all that much different than when he came. And I'd like to think that Jesus cleaned up everything and he perfected everything and it's all good. And now we see the difference, but he doesn't. And I think that's because Jesus doesn't come to perfect the world. Jesus comes to step into the mess of the world to heal it and to restore it and to redeem it. And to offer a way for us to have life. And it comes back to the cross. Not only does Jesus' life make no sense if you remove the cross. The reality is, when you think about how Jesus lives his life and what he teaches. Really the most natural place that he's going to end up is a cross. If people around Jesus are really listening to what he's saying and watching what he's doing, they have to be stepping back and thinking, Jesus, are you really want to do this? That's not going to end well. You need to back off a little bit on what you're saying to the, the Pharisees. They have power. You need to just be a little softer with, with Herod. Don't hang out with those kinds of people. That's not going to get you where you want to be. If, you, if people really were able to see and understand what Jesus was doing and what he was saying and, and what, his, what his word was, really, if you, if you think about it, it's going to end up in something that looks like a cross. Because Jesus' whole life, even though he had all the power in existence, he let go of it. And the startling thing about pondering that is that if that's the way Jesus' life is headed, then what does that say about those of us who are disciples of that same Jesus? And the direction of our lives and the call of our lives. If you're like me, I, I I want to try to embrace the cross without embracing the kind of life that the cross demands. As much as I hear the gospel, as much as I hear Jesus saying, as much as I hear the writers of Scripture saying and the, and the people through the ages saying 
that the way of life is the way of the cross. I keep thinking, surely there's a different way. But there's not. And that has something to say with, about our, our relationships, just as it does the relationships of the people in Corinth. As you think about your relationships, particularly relationships that might have some cracks in them, what's the spirit and the attitude in which we are addressing them? Now, Paul's not saying that, that we can't say we're right. Paul's not saying that, that we, can't, we can't disagree. He's not saying that, that we can't have different opinions about things because... We do. In fact, I, I'm convinced that one of, the, one of the primary ways we learn is through disagreeing with people and, and, and discussing things with people, maybe even arguing at times with people, because that, that's how new ideas start getting into our minds. That's a good thing. But the, the point he's making is, what's the attitude, what's the spirit in which we come to those disagreements and those differences of opinion? Do we come to them in a spirit of arrogance or humility? Do we come to them in a spirit that that is like wisdom and power? Or something that looks foolish and vulnerable like a cross? Do we approach our relationships thinking, I have to win? Or do we approach our relationships with, I want to love? And it doesn't mean we're not right. There's a good chance we are right. And we can can talk about our opinions and our thoughts and our perspectives and how we view things. It's the spirit in which we do it. I don't think there's anything wrong in the church in Corinth with some of the people feeling more connected to Paul or to Peter or to Apollos. The problem was they were saying, because I follow Apollos, you're wrong. Because I connect with Peter, you're wrong. And you're less than me. And that spirit, that attitude that doesn't look anything like the cross was tearing the church apart. And it will us too. I saw an article this week that, that the, the title grabbed me. The article was fine, but it was really the title that grabbed me. It, it, the title was, Lent is Back to Mess Up Our Lives Once Again. There's something about that that rings true. The season of the year when we focus more than ever on the cross and the call of the cross to vulnerability and looking foolish because we love and we care about people. We don't have to always be thinking about ourselves and we give of our resources and we love one another and we surrender Christ. That's the call of the cross. And during the season of Lent, we are especially thinking about it, not because that's the only time we should, 
but because it is a time when our focus tends to get directed there. And I, find, I think there could be huge value to us personally, to us corporately. To hear the words of Paul saying, you know what, if you look foolish, that's okay. So did Jesus. Father, thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. Thank you that your love leads us to the cross. Give us grace to embrace the message of the cross. And in so doing, bring healing to us in every way that we need it. That we may bear witness of you to one another and to the whole world. Christ, we pray. Amen.